navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. Happy June. Uh, strange weather if you're uh, up here in the Northeast uh, with uh, all the fires and smog, but you're indoors now and safe, which is good. So it's a good time to uh, catch up on this CLE. First of all, before I get underway, a couple of, of um, sort of groundkeeping uh, rules and things to go over. If you're not a member of the Academy yet, I implore you to join, especially if you've been benefiting over the last couple of years from all these free CLEs and you enjoy it uh, by joining the Academy, you'll uh, you'll get a discount, first of all, because you've already attended CLEs. And secondly, you'll be able to get really involved and make a difference and have all kinds of databases and access to things that you currently don't because you're not a member. So please consider joining uh, if you are not a member already. Uh, secondly, uh, if you've missed any of the parts of this medical malpractice series, because we are in the last part, this is part six of uh, the six parts, uh, they're all up online with the Academy. If you're a member, you can get it. Uh, they're also available on my podcast and online at thementoresq.com with links to the materials. Oftentimes, people reach out to me for materials. Uh, you can find all the materials at thementoresq.com. Just search for the specific CLE topic and you can download it right from there and also get credit. Um, I've already lectured extensively on trial skills. I did a series on trial skills where we went through jury selection, opening statements, direct cross-exam, uh, and closing arguments, summations. So obviously, I'm not going to be able to get through those types of trial skills uh, in this one hour that we have together um, based on medical malpractice cases. So I encourage you to go back and check out those if you're looking for ways to learn how to do better at trial with those types of skills. And uh, also be on the lookout, I'm working on book number two, which will just be on trial skills, which will hopefully be out later this year, uh, that will dive into specific ways of cross-examining and uh, doing openings and directs and the like. So what I thought I would do with regard to today's topic, the trial in a medical malpractice case, would be to highlight the different aspects involved in a medical malpractice trial from other negligence trials, whether they're auto accidents, premise liability, product liability, uh, what have you, labor law. In a medical malpractice case, there are certain things that are a little bit different when you're getting ready for trial and when you're trying the case. And that's what I wanna highlight on today. And uh, hopefully as always, you'll take away some good tidbits, learn something new. Even if you learn some one thing new today that you came into this CLE not knowing, then I think it's worthwhile. And uh, hopefully you do as well. So I have a bunch of stuff in the materials. Uh, I'm only gonna go through one of the items uh, on the Zoom uh, today, uh, but uh, there are materials which I will mention as we go through that I think can be helpful uh, if you have a medical malpractice case coming up for trial. So the first thing that I wanna talk about, which I think is really important in medical malpractice litigation and trials is what we call the empty chair. Many of us have heard of, what are we gonna do about this empty chair? And what that basically means is, let's say you have a case where um, you sued a radiologist 
uh, you're a plaintiff and uh, you brought a claim. The radiologist failed to timely diagnose a cancer. That was, uh, the argument is it was visible on some films and uh, they missed it. And then let's say there was another, maybe the hospital did something wrong or a different hospital that received the films uh, and they didn't act on it. So your plaintiff, you bring the case, you name the radiologist and you name the hospital. Two different defendants, two different firms, two different insurance carriers. And what you will might run into is a scenario where one of those defendants, let's say the radiologist, maybe he or she has a private practice, they only have so much in coverage, and they just want to resolve the case and be done with it. And they make a significant offer, which you think is probably their share. Maybe they agree to pay 50% of the value what you think the case is worth. And they're willing to settle, but the hospital's saying, no, no, we're not settling. We don't think we did anything wrong. We're taking a no pay. So sometimes what I hear my colleagues will do on the plaintiff side is they may say, all right, let's settle with the radiologist. Let's get that money in. We'll have that to fund the trial moving forward. We'll have some extra money to pay for all of our experts and our exhibits. And let's just go against the hospital and um, see what happens there. And then, you know, we can just go right at the hospital with our guns ablazing. But then what happens is there's an empty chair because the radiologist is not at the trial. Now, the problem that I always see in these scenarios, and which is why I never want to get into that empty chair scenario, if you can avoid it, is because the hospital and the hospital's doctors and experts can spend the whole trial pointing the finger at the radiologist. They may or may not want to do so, but strategically, it would make a lot of sense. We were fine. We only look at these films uh, closely if they've been flagged by a radiologist, but this radiologist gave us the all clear. We had no reason to look at it. And you can be certain if you go to trial, having settled out with the radiologist, that the hospital's lawyers, doctors, experts are all going to point the finger at the empty chair, at the radiologist. It wasn't our fault, was the radiologist's fault. And that's a real problem because then the jury may seriously consider that. Well, why isn't the radiologist here? What's going on? You can't get up there at trial and say, oh, we settled with the radiologist. It's all good. You're not allowed to bring that out at a trial. So all they're going to see is you only have one claim going. And where is this radiologist we keep hearing about? All right. So that could create a problem. You can lose the case because they can point the finger at the empty chair. Um, but on the other hand, let's say the verdict comes in and let's say you win against the hospital and you win $500,000. Well, guess what? If you already settled for $500,000 with the radiologist before trial, it becomes a set-off. You can't have a double recovery. So you don't get the $500,000 from the radiologist, then the $500,000 you win at trial against the hospital for a total of a million. In essence, you're stuck with the first $500,000. And now all you've done is gone through trial, spent all that time, energy, and it hasn't benefited you. So if you are going to settle with one defendant in a medical malpractice case, which I don't recommend you do, uh, and you're going to go to trial, you need to feel pretty confident that you've got a strong case against the remaining defendant that you're going to trial against, and that you think the damage award potential is significant enough that it's still worthwhile even with the offset. 
So if you think the case is worth $2 million and you can get an offer from one of the defendants, maybe you don't think they're a big player in the case and maybe they pay overpay. Maybe they pay 500,000, right? And you didn't think they were that culpable. And you go to trial and you get a verdict of $2 million, then you're okay, right? Because you'll still get another million and a half after the set off. The other reason not to have an empty chair and not to settle out, and sometimes it's hard. I've had numerous cases where I have multiple defendants in a medical malpractice case. I had one recently with two different hospitals, and one was saying, hey, we're ready to settle with you. And um, and I said, well, unless you pay the total amount of damages that I think this case is worth, I can't settle. I can't let you out and have you be the empty chair. And they understood that. And I had to sit and wait for over a year plus, even though they were willing to talk turkey, uh, until I could get a settlement with everybody or I'd go to trial against everybody. Because then in the scenario that I gave you of the radiologist uh, in the hospital, if you don't let the radiologist out, you say, thank you for your offer of $500,000, but you know, I just, I can't do it. There's going to be a set off. There's going to be an empty chair. Uh, I wouldn't be representing my client properly if I did that. Then you go to trial. What you'll learn if you're just getting into this area of practice, and if you've been practicing medical malpractice cases for a while, you know this, but one defense, uh, one defendant is usually not too anxious to point fingers at another defendant. And you'll see this at depositions. I'm always amazed when I have multiple defendants in a medical malpractice case and I'm questioning one doctor and I do all the questioning and then the other defendants counsels, I'm good, I'm good, no questions, no questions. Um, they don't even question the doctors. They really don't wanna be in a situation where potentially they can be blamed for uh, helping out the plaintiff or making out a case. But at trial, it's pretty difficult. It's pretty difficult. And if you're a plaintiff and you have multiple defendants and you have theories of liability against both, you can just tell the jury, listen, hey, we think there are departures from both of them, but you decide. You decide which one of them or both. Uh, and then it really puts both of these defendants in a tough scenario of whether they're going to blame the other or not. And it puts the defendants on their back heels uh, where you can be more aggressive at trial uh, as opposed to the empty chair. So it's something that you need to think about. And uh, I'm always happy to talk with you in one of my one-on-ones that I book if you run into a scenario where you're trying to weigh the pros and cons. But our philosophy at my firm over the last several decades is that you don't want to go to trial with a viable defendant where there's a uh, without a viable defendant there. Uh, you're better off not settling, getting all of all of the parties involved in the case there and air it all out in front of the jury. Okay. For those of you joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is POD683. Again, that's POD683. All right. Now, if you've been with me through this whole series, I want you to think all the way back to part one where we talked about screening the case. And you may recall that back then I talked about the PJI, the pattern jury instructions, and why it's so important at the outset of a medical malpractice case to look at the language in the PJI, look at the appropriate charges that may apply to your case, because you get the good language 
uh, to see what the judge is actually going to talk to the jury about when the charging conference comes at the end of the trial. You want to start using those same words, that same language. There's annotations in the PJI that can help you find cases maybe similar to yours and issues similar to yours that you can look up. But certainly now, by the time you're getting ready for trial and at trial, that set of PJI books or your laptop or your computer with access to your Lex Lexus or Westlaw, whatever service you use for your PJI, you must have at the ready and you must review. The reason is you are really going to want to zero in at this point on the language in the judge's charge at the end of the case and use that exact language in your trial. You need to weave it in, not only into your opening statements, not only into your jury selection, but you want to use that language when you're questioning witnesses. And in a medical malpractice case, the witnesses that you're going to be most concerned with are going to be the medical witnesses, not surprising. You're going to be concerned about the medical experts and the medical um, lay or party witnesses. So if you're on the plaintiff side, you want to really be zooming in and focusing in on the preparation of your expert, and you want to be really focusing in on and preparing to conduct the cross-examination of the defendant's expert witness or witnesses. You could have more than one doctor to question, um, as well as the defendants themselves. So you're going to really need extra time to prepare, to do your research, and to make sure to weave the proper language in, all right? So the language, for example, in the materials from part one, I put in the PJI charge, which is 2 colon 150, and that is malpractice physician. And you may recall from back then, but I'm going to reiterate it to you, just briefly, the, the top part that it says. Malpractice is professional negligence. And medical malpractice is the negligence of a doctor. Negligence is the failure to use reasonable care under the circumstances. Doing something that a reasonably prudent doctor would not do under the circumstances or failing to do something that a reasonably prudent doctor would do under the circumstances. It is a deviation or departure from accepted practice. Okay, PGI 2 colon 150. This is the first thing the jury's going to hear after you finish summations in the trial when they're starting to go through charges specific to a medical malpractice case. So there's some interesting language I just read. First of all, something that a reasonably prudent doctor would do or would not do. So when you're preparing your opening statement, when you're talking to the jury in jury selection, when you're asking the doctors questions, you may want to say, for example, in your opening, members of the jury, we believe the evidence will demonstrate here that the defendant, Dr. Smith, failed to do what a reasonably prudent doctor would have done under the circumstances. And then when you get to questioning your expert, and we'll talk about that in a moment, specific questions, you're going to want to throw that same language in. And Dr. So-and-so, based on your evaluation of the case, what do you believe uh, the accepted practice would be for a reasonably prudent doctor in this area of cardiology, all right? So you want to start using that language. You want to start talking about deviations or departures from accepted practice. If you'll notice, the language standard of care didn't come up 
in his charge. So some lawyers make the mistake of saying, was that a departure from the standard of care? Was that in compliance with the standard of care? But then when the time comes for the jury to hear the instructions by the judge, the judge isn't talking about standard of care. The judge is talking about deviations or departures from accepted practice. They're talking about something a reasonably prudent doctor would or would not do under the circumstances. So it's super important because there's nothing better than sitting back after you've completed your summation and you're listening to the judge charge the jury on something reasonably prudent and the jury's looking and nodding and you've just used that language in your summation, either as a plaintiff or defense, okay? So look up the charges. You're gonna wanna use them, uh, the language in them, and you're going to want to know what the jury is going to be charged on the law. It's not just this one charge I read you. There's other charges specific to medical malpractice cases. For example, one that I included in the materials that you have at page 13 is informed consent. Now, many people think, oh, there's no case because there was a consent, uh, a consent form signed. Others will say, I've got a great case as a plaintiff because they didn't sign a consent form. They didn't even give them a consent form, okay? But that's that's not how it works. If you look at the charge that the jury hears at 2 colon 150A, you'll see that in general, they talk about whether or not you think that the doctor obtained informed consent from the patient before moving forward with the procedure or treatment, okay? Now, there may not be a consent form signed, for example, there may be one sign, maybe the doctor testifies, I always say this to all of my patients. But the kicker is, even if a doctor fails to obtain informed consent by talking about the risks of the treatment or the surgery, and doesn't have a form signed, and even acknowledges, oh, I may or may not have said it, you still don't win. Because what you'll see in the charge is there's a second part that says, if you think that the doctor did not obtain proper informed consent and the plaintiff was not informed as to the risks, then do you think even if the doctor did obtain informed consent, did advise the patient of all of the risks, do you think whether the patient would have undergone the procedure anyway? Okay. That's the tough one that most people don't talk about in informed consent, because many times a jury could be like, yeah, no one reads those forms anyway. Maybe they did give it and they probably would have signed it even if they told them there was a risk of death and all this horrific stuff. We all signed those papers. We know you got to do it. So informed consent cases aren't as strong as many people think they are. But again, you need to read the language in the charge. You need to weave those issues into your opening, your closing, and your questioning. There's other charges, continuous treatment. There are other theories of deviations or departures from accepted practice in a medical malpractice case. And you wanna get as many of those as possible, okay? And we're gonna talk about that. So first, PJI, go through the table of contents, the index, find every charge that you think applies to your case in a medical malpractice case, all right? I've given you a sample of a request to charge that I've used in a cardiology case, which I'm gonna talk about. That sample's on page 21. Request to charge or something that the judge, the trial judge is going to ask you to provide. Uh, if it's my friend, Judge Sampson, who I think is watching, hey, your honor, 
you're going to have to have that request to charge ready before you even give your opening statement and a proposed verdict sheet. His honor wants to know where you're going with this case, what proof you believe you're going to have and see what comes out right at the outset. And I think that's great. And you want to be prepared for that because it helps you get organized for trial. But some trial judges may say, get me your request to charge uh, right before the charging conference or more towards the end of the case. Either way, you can put in there, copy and paste the request to charge the specific charges that apply to your case. So you want to have those. And the more as a plaintiff you can put in as far as different departures from accepted practice, the better shot you have of winning what we like to call more bites at the apple. Okay. You don't have to go in. Was there negligence, medical negligence or not? Yes or no. If you're on the defense side, you only want there to be that one question. Was the doctor negligent? Uh, did the doctor depart from accepted practice and failing to X, Y, and Z? Yes or no. So if you're on the defense side, you want one question and you want that answer to be no. If you're on the plaintiff side, you're going to want as many bites at the apple for every area where you think you can argue there was a departure or deviation from accepted practice. Because then you can put in eight of them and all you need is one them to find that, yes, that was a deviation or departure. All right. It gives you numerous bites at the apple. And I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about and how you need to lay the groundwork for these multiple bites at the apple in a trial. All right. First of all, CPLR 4111, it's in your materials at page 16. That talks about special verdicts. And as a plaintiff in a medical malpractice case, you're always going to want to request a special verdict, which will have numerous questions on numerous areas that you believe there were departures or where the negligence occurred in the medical setting. All right. And it's not mandatory uh, on the liability issues. Uh, but if you develop the record and establish it, then you allow the trial judge to say, yeah, I think a special verdict is appropriate. I've heard evidence from the experts on numerous areas of deviations, and I don't see why I shouldn't give all of that. But if you don't lay out all of those deviations or departures through your experts, then the judge may say, I didn't hear your expert other than to say, yeah, that one question, was there a departure from good and accepted practice? And your expert said, yes. So I don't see why I should give you numerous bites at the apple. You didn't develop it in your case. So a special verdict is something that plaintiffs will want, defendants will not want. An itemized verdict as to damages is required in a medical malpractice case. And again, that's in the materials. Uh, and it starts talking about that also in CPLR 4111. It's just a lot of more detailed questions about damages than in a normal negligence case uh, when it's a medical malpractice case. All right. So let me give you an idea of what I mean about multiple bites and how to develop your case so that you can get these multiple bites if you're a plaintiff. And if you're a defendant, you want to be on the lookout for this and try and knock these out as much as possible and not allow these multiple bites. You don't want them to, the plaintiff to have all of these chances to get a verdict against your client. So I'm going to give you sort of a brief fact pattern, and then we're going to look at a verdict sheet, a proposed verdict sheet that I put forth in a case. It's a death case. 
My client uh, gets admitted to a hospital, my client's mother. She's in the hospital. She may have had a stroke. They're not sure. She's having all this horrible head pain, head pain. And ultimately, uh, we alleged as the plaintiffs that the doctor who the attending was at this hospital just totally missed the signs, missed the symptoms, thought that it could be a really dangerous lethal condition, but didn't share that with the client, uh, didn't refer the client for an urgent CAT scan, uh, left for the day, and in handing over the case to the next doctors, didn't say what his in concerns were and didn't put them in the record that this could be, there may be an intracranial uh, bleed or a hemorrhage going on up in there, and we've got to monitor it. All right. Uh, we claim that a CT scan should have been done earlier and it wasn't ordered, that they uh, should have discontinued certain thrombolytic therapy. And that is important. And that should have been discontinued. And that wasn't done. Uh, that the patient, my client's decedent, uh, was transferred to another hospital and they didn't give the new hospital a heads up that we think this can be life-threatening. We didn't get a CT scan done. You should do it. So they didn't advise the family members. Listen, here's the situation I think your mother's in. So all of these different items we believed were all in and of themselves departures from accepted practice. That this wasn't a case where there's just one yes or no, was there a departure or not? We believe that each one of these departures were independent it could form the basis of liability. For example, would one after each one of them, you say, was that a proximate cause or a substantial factor in causing the death? Yes or no? So the failure to recognize the signs of an intracerebral bleed, was that a departure? If the answer is yes, was that a proximate cause or substantial factor in causing the injury or death? You only need that one answer. And if the answer is yes, you go into the next one, and you go into the next one, but all you need is one yes to get to damages. And what this does by asking these numerous questions in the verdict sheet is it gives you insight to the jury's thinking. It gives the trial judge insight to the jury's thinking where they check yes to some or no to others. And it helps on appellate review because instead of that one question, all of these sort of sub divisions of the departures from accepted practice, uh, the appellate court can see where the jury came down on it. So what I want to do is I'm going to share my screen now uh, to a verdict sheet that I used in this case, uh, and it's in your materials at page 24, but I'm going to share my screen, which, you know, I don't like to do too often, um, but I'm going to do it now. And so just bear with me. All right. So you should all see a verdict sheet up here. Do you see that, Michelle? Yep, you're good. All right. Uh, I've redacted the names uh, out of respect for everyone, although it's probably on the public docket. So this is the case I just described to you. Now, this is a proposed verdict sheet. This is the sheet that we submitted to the trial judge at the pretrial, uh, I'm sorry, at the charging conference, uh, which I'll talk about in a moment. And this is what we suggested the evidence showed. So as you go through, you're going to see question one. Did this doctor depart from accepted medical practice, again, using the language from the PJI, by failing to recognize that this headache was a warning sign of an intracerebral bleed at the 8.50 in the morning note? You'll see times are in here because time is of the essence. If you're bleeding in the brain, it's getting worse and worse and requires fast action. If yes, was this, here's the proximate cause question, was it a substantial contributing factor in the decedent's eventual death, 
or reducing her chances of survival. You're allowed to get those both of those in there. Um, if yes, we've won, okay? If no, we move on to our second bite of the apple. It's still going to move on, but all you need is one. You could get more than one or you could get zero, all right? And the second one we're asking, did the doctor depart at the time of his 1.37 p.m. note and failing to diagnose or treat the intracerebral bleed? So in this case, there are issues of when the doctor should have really known. And we we're saying from the beginning, at the middle, all these things were cumulative signs of a dangerous situation going on here. And then I go through a number three, I ask for another one. Uh, was it a departure from good and accepted practice and failing to notify the medical staff uh, after he split for the afternoon of the shift to be on the lookout of things getting worse and that this could be a very dangerous, life-threatening condition? All right. Failure to order a CT scan. Um, failing to discontinue thrombolytic therapy. So you can see we're putting in all of these bites at the apple. Okay. And you can look more in detail as you get through it. Um, but we put all these in in our request for the verdict sheet. All right. Now, the only basis we really had to do that was because we developed evidence in the case for each one of these. So at the start of the trial, the plan was, let's not just go in and say, is this medical malpractice? Yes or no. Did the doctor depart? And was that a substantial or proximate cause of the death? Yes or no. The game plan as a plaintiff going into this is we've got to break it down to every place where we believe our experts can say that there was a departure from the accepted practice uh, or where the doctor did something that a reasonably prudent doctor would not have done fail to do something. And the way that you get that out is through your expert, okay? Through your expert. And that's what I want to talk about now is the direct exam for the plaintiff of your expert. And this is equally going to apply to the defendant as an expert. And here's where the defense counsel, you have to be on your toes and taking notes or getting the daily transcripts from the trial. You want to be on the lookout. Are they trying to get multiple bites of the apple here. Because if you hear from the plaintiff's expert only one question on whether there was a departure and was it a proximate cause or substantial factor, then you're golden. You're going to get to the charging conference. You're going to see plaintiff's lawyers submitting a proposed verdict sheet with 10 questions. And all you've got to do is say to the trial judge, here's the transcript from their expert. They only talked about one area of departure. So I don't know why they should get the benefit of all of this. This this wasn't spelled out. There's no expert testimony on it, okay? But on the flip side, if you're sitting there and you're hearing the direct examination from the plaintiff of the plaintiff's medical expert, this was a departure, that was a departure, uh, multiple departures, then you need to prepare your expert to get on the stand. And in your direct, bring out every one of those bites and talk about how that's not a separate thing, it's all intertwined, whatever you wanna use, but you need to be on the lookout for this and prepared to deal with it, all right? So that you can push back at the charging conference, which I'll talk about momentarily. But let's talk about the expert and preparing your expert. You're gonna to wanna to make sure your expert is prepared to provide credentials, why that expert is good in his or her field of medicine and should be listened to by the jury. You're gonna to wanna to make sure that your expert is fully knowledgeable about all the medical treatment and all the medical records in the case. 
You're going to want to make sure you meet with your expert on more than one occasion to go over everything. You're going to want to make sure your medical expert before getting on the stand knows the language to use. You don't want to do all this prep work and have your medical expert get up on the stand and start talking about, oh, I think they they went off from what we would expect in the standard of care. Went off from what we'd expect in the standard of care? No. Deviated or departed from accepted practice. Okay, you want to make sure the expert you're using has the right language, reasonably prudent doctors, all of that. Okay, so you're going to meet with your expert and you should have a standard sort of outline that you're going to use with these experts. The first thing you need to do is qualify your expert. Now, some judges want you to officially ask the court to recognize or tender uh, your witness as an expert in the field. Um, some don't and let you just continue on. You can always ask, and I suggest asking your trial judge at the beginning or before your expert takes the stand, your honor, do you want uh, me to ask the court at the appropriate time after I establish my expert's credentials to recognize, or do you want me just to keep going through? Certainly reasonable. So Many of us know what a CV is, a curriculum vitae. It's the resume of a physician, which will list their licenses, their board certifications, um, their education and training type of work they've done, private practice, hospitals, fellowships, uh, publications, lectures, all the good stuff that makes them an expert in their field. But you can't just stand up there and introduce that expert's curriculum vitae into evidence. I have rarely had success in doing that. I would like to be able to do it because then a jury can just sit there and I could say, look at, look at our expert's curriculum vitae. It's in evidence. You can see all the impressive credentials. She knows what she's talking about. She teaches. She's done all the right training. Most judges will say, counsel, come on, you've got the witness on the stand. The witness can testify about her credentials. So you need to prepare, be prepared to ask questions, have the CV up for direct examination for yourself. Doctor, where'd you go to college? Where'd you go to graduate school? Can you tell the jury where you did your internship? And did you do a fellowship in cardiology? And why is that? Why does one do a fellowship? And are you board certified? Yes. What is board certification? Well, it means I know what I'm talking about and I'm an expert in this field and I had to go through testing and, uh, and uh, in-person testing and written testing. Um, do you hold licenses in other states? Do you have other certifications? Have you ever published? Have you ever been honored? So you wanna bring all that out. It's really important you do that to show that your uh, expert on the stand is actually qualified to opine in the case. Usually at the end, you could say, your honor, we'd ask the court to recognize Dr. Smith as an expert in cardiology. The judge will usually look at the adversary. Do you have any objection? Usually there's not an objection. Okay, if there is, you deal with it. Uh, then you move on. Then what I think is super important, and I always do in, uh, in a medical malpractice case, uh, is what we call the anatomy lesson. You should have your expert prepared to come down off the witness stand and give a lesson to the jury about the anatomy that you're talking about in the case. So sticking with this cardiology case, um, I would have the expert explain what the condition is, what an intracerebral bleed is, how that works, how it's diagnosed, um, how, the, how the system works where blood travels through the body and all of that so that they understand the issues involved in the case. 
So if your case involves a surgery that went wrong when they went in to operate uh, on a leg, an orthopedic surgery, you're going to want to have the anatomy lesson from your orthopedic expert explaining the bones, and you will work in advance with your medical expert to create the right exhibits for this lesson. Sometimes it's a, it's a model of a skeleton. Sometimes it's um, a blow up of a part of the anatomy. Sometimes it is illustrations that you could have custom created. There's all types of good uh, demonstrative evidence that can be used. So speak with your expert, see generally what your expert likes to use, maybe make some suggestions so that you can show the anatomy involved, the medical systems involved, and also the procedure involved. If the issue is involving a surgery that went awry, or maybe they used the wrong equipment or went in in the wrong location, or why you've got to be super careful when you're operating in this area, you're going to want to have the proper demonstrative evidence that shows that procedure. Maybe it's a video. Maybe it's a step-by-step -step medical illustration or animation that's going to show the proper way that the procedure is done. So you're going to have your exhibits. You're going to want the anatomy lesson where I always ask Dr. So-and-so, Dr. Smith, um, can we're going to be talking a lot about intracerebral bleeds and concerns about how it affects the heart and the arteries. Um, I'd like you to please step down to explain some of this to the jury with the court's permission. Okay, he steps down. Doctor, I've prepared some exhibits at your request. I've marked this for demonstrative purposes as exhibit one. Uh, will this assist you? Yes, it will. You put it up on the board. Uh, on the easel and say, now, can you explain uh, the, the, the parts of the anatomy that are at issue in this case to the jury? And then you sit back and you stand there and you watch your expert who you're paying a lot of money earn her keep, getting up there, giving a beautiful presentation like they would to med students uh, or lay people or high school students or elementary school students, nice and simple, explaining all the medicine. So you go through that. Then you get into what happened in the specific case, in the facts of your case, going through what they reviewed. Did they see, were there any issues that they found with the treatment? Well, yes, there were. Well, tell us, did you see that there were any uh, departures from the accepted practice in cardiology uh, with regard to the treatment rendered to you know, my client? Well, yes, I did. Um, well, did you find that Dr. So-and-so departed? Yes, I did. Uh, and can you explain, you know, where you believe there was a departure? And here's where you have them prepared to talk about all the bites at the apple. So in my situation, um, I would want my doctor expert to be ready to talk about every single departure and what you can do to help that out. So there's not really a battle about the facts is you're allowed to ask your medical expert or any experts at trial of any trial, hypothetical questions. So I would say, all right, doctor, having reviewed everything in this case, I want you to assume for the moment the following fact scenario. I want you to assume that doctor so-and-so saw the patient at 8.35 in the morning, that there were complaints of a severe headache, and the doctor believed that this could be an intracerebral bleed. Um, assuming that, I want you to further assume that the doctor failed to order an immediate CAT scan at that point. Based on that hypothetical situation, do you have an opinion to within a reasonable degree of medical certainty as to whether Dr. Johnson would be departing from the accepted practice in your field if 
failing in failing to order a CAT scan. Well, yes, I do have an opinion. And what is your opinion? Well, my opinion is to within a reasonable degree of medical certainty that based upon these records, your hypothetical is right on point, based upon these records, Dr. Smith or Jones did depart from good and accepted practice in the care rendered. And why did the doctor depart from accepted practice? Well, the doctor should immediately have ordered a CAT scan. Um, that CAT scan would have revealed the bleed, there would be a good chance of success. And doctor, was that departure uh, from accepted practice, in your opinion, approximate cause or a substantial factor in the ultimate death of uh, my client's mother? Yes, it was. And did you find any other departures from accepted practice in your review of the facts in this case? And again, you could do a hypothetical to help get him or her there, or you could leave it at that, depending on how well your expert's ready. Well, yes, I did see multiple other ones. Okay, what else? Well, I do notice that at you know 1.37 p.m., there was an additional complaint. There was notes made by X, Y, and Z. And based on that, uh, immediate action was required and no action was taken at all. And in your opinion, to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, was that failure to act a departure from the accepted practice? Yes. And do you have an opinion as to whether or not that departure was a substantial factor in causing the ultimate death of my client's mother? Yes, I believe it was a substantial factor in causing it. And then you go on and on and on until you're done and you've gone through all of the departures. You need to ask the departure question. You need to ask followed up with a substantial factor, approximate cause question. And all of those opinions need to be to within a reasonable degree of medical certainty. Now, one thing, one sort of trick of the trade that uh, we use is we preface the doctor and we say, now, Dr. Smith, I'm going to ask you to give various opinions at this time, and I want all of these opinions to be sure that you're giving them to within a reasonable degree of medical certainty, okay? Yes, I will. All of my opinions in this case are to within a reasonable degree of medical certainty. That covers you. That covers you if you forget to ask within a reasonable degree or when the doctor gives his or her opinion and they fail to say it's my opinion within a reasonable degree of medical certainty, and they just say it's my opinion that... Um, you're still covered. You're covered for appellate review because you've gotten that blanket statement out earlier on. But all experts need to give opinions to within a reasonable degree of medical certainty. That is the standard. They need to talk about every itemized departure you want to get on that verdict sheet. Um, and they need to do the proximate cause. Because if you don't get all of those departures, you're not going to be able to ask for them on the verdict sheet because your adversary is going to jump right on it and say, those questions all didn't come out. The jury's going to be seeing this for the first time now. There's no evidence to support it. And again, if the case goes up on appeal, if one side doesn't like the result, uh, this is, you know, verdict sheets are a prime area for getting cases reversed. Um, and that's what you're trying to do, getting verdicts reversed. And you could say, I should have had multiple bites and the judge only gave one question. That could be considered an abuse of discretion if you can show that your expert listed all of these areas of departures and they weren't on the verdict sheet. Conversely, if a lot of departures are on the verdict sheet and just one of them is found by the jury to have been a departure um, and it's one that didn't come out in a specific questioning during the trial, then 
The defense has a good basis for saying the court abused its discretion in giving a special verdict. It should have been one question. And here, there wasn't any evidence with regards to that specific departure that the jury found. So that's the argument that would be made. So it's super important. These are things you think about in a medical malpractice trial that you would not think about in other types of cases. Multiple departures, multiple questions for the jury, special verdicts. You always want to shoot for that as a plaintiff. Again, as a defense, you don't. You want one question. Now, before you go into your closing arguments, there will be a charging conference. I'm going to spend my last few minutes talking about the charging conference. The charging conference uh, you've had, if you've had any other trial before, but if you've not, and this is the first time you're hearing about it, a charging conference is when the lawyers meet with the trial judge, sometimes also with the trial judge's law secretary, and review what charges are going to be given to this jury and what the verdict sheet is going to look like. And Usually it starts off as an informal conference, meaning not on the record, where you go into chambers and the trial judge will set the time for the charging conference when you're scheduling out the trial. Say, all right, close of evidence is going to be on Thursday. I expect it'll be done by Thursday afternoon. I'd like summations to to start on Friday morning and give the case to the jury by Friday afternoon. I want you all to come in Thursday afternoon for the charging conference. So when you come to the charging conference, you need to come totally prepared. Preparation, preparation, preparation. Um, many people will show up if they have the benefit of having a law specialist, specialty person in the firm or an appellate lawyer uh, that they plan on using or use regularly, someone who really knows the law. Um, my father, Guy, uh, shout out, Dad. I believe he's uh, on the program uh, watching today. Uh, he's my lawman for the last decade or so. And the two of us come walking into that charging conference. And my dad's got the set of the PJI with him. He's got cases printed out. Uh, and, uh, and we sit there and we argue for why we're entitled to what we've submitted, the charges we've requested in your request to charge on page 21 why we think our proposed verdict sheet is the right sheet. And then, of course, the defense is going to push back on me and on us, say, no, no, you, you don't get 10 questions. That's ridiculous. And uh, they'll start fighting on it. And we push back and we give them the case law of why we're entitled to a special verdict. And they may give case law on why the we're not. Uh, but you have to have the case law ready. You have to have the charges you want ready. We may ask for a charge on lack of informed consent, and the defense may say, you're not getting that, that you, there's no evidence brought out about consent. And so whatever it is, it's really important to come ready to argue at the charging conference, because ultimately, the judge is going to decide what charges to read to the jury and what the verdict sheet is going to look like. And if you don't ask for it in the charging conference or you don't object to it in the charging conference, you're losing certain uh, appealable rights you have. So initially, the judge will review your requests, review your verdict sheets probably before the conference. And then when you come in, there will be a robust discussion. The judge may say, I think I'm going to give all of these or I'm only going to give one or I'm only going to give two. And the lawyers can push back and argue what they think based on the applicable law. Um, that's why it's really good to look at the annotations of the PJI, because they will cite as cases that um, have gone up on appeal for that section of the 
PJI, that specific charge. So you can see where it's been held to be required, where it's been held to be an abuse to give that charge. So you do your homework. And then ultimately, the judge will say to you, all right, well, here's where I'm leaning. I believe that I'm going to give you three of your 10 requested questions, Mr. Smiley. I think three is more than enough. And defense counsel, I'm sorry, I know you wanted one, uh, but I think three is sufficient here. These are the ones I can bind them. I'm going to charge this. I'm not going to charge that. And then um, we go out usually into the courtroom or the court reporter is brought inside and a record is made where the judge will go through every single charge that the judge is giving and what the verdict sheet is going to look like. And at that time is when you want to make your objections. You're going to stand up, Your Honor. We take exception to that charge. Uh, we object to the court giving that charge. We don't think that there was any evidence elicited at trial to support that. Judge will say your exception is noted and continue on. Okay. That's what makes the record on appeal. You have to object at that time. Or if the judge refuses to include a charge or refuses to include something on the verdict sheet, say, as Your Honor knows, we've requested this charge. The court's advised that uh, you're not going to give it. Uh, we obviously take an exception to that. Uh, and you want to have all of this on the record. Again, you don't want to get up on appeal because you lost the case and you want to get it reversed. And you're looking at the verdict sheet, you're looking at the charges, and you missed something, you let something slide that got in, or you failed to get something in, and then you go up on appeal and they're like, well, you didn't speak up uh, at the charging conference. You didn't submit that as a proposed charge. You didn't object to it. All right. And that's when the appellate lawyers turn to you and you look pretty bad there, and uh, and that's going to be a problem for you, all right? So charging conference, super important, but you need to, it's like a chess game, trials and litigation. We all know this. You need to lay the foundation when that case first comes in. All right, well, what would the potential departures be here? Let me look at the PJI. Yeah, I think they departed here. Let me ask my expert that. Then you're going to want to build it up. You're going to want to ask your questions at depositions of all the witnesses before you get to trial. Then when you get to trial, you're going to want to know exactly where you're going and have a roadmap. So you're not surprised when it's time to do your charge request. For those of you joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD129. Again, that's P. O-D-1-2-9. All right. Now, getting into some of the questions here. Um, Danina is asking about, to be more inclusive of both sides, I should include Carvalho. Uh, I'm not sure if you mean being inclusive in my presentation to make sure that I address the concerns of defense counsel as equally as plaintiff's counsel, which I do try and do, even though I am a plaintiff's counsel. Um, Carvalho, we spoke about when it was uh, talking about depositions in a medical malpractice case. So you can go back to that part. And uh, we talk about what Carvalho is all about. For those of you who don't know, uh, there's limitations on whether or not at a deposition, you can ask uh, one defendant physician questions that would go to whether or not a co-defendant departed from the standard of care. You're not allowed to do that. In essence, that's what Carvalho means. All right, Kenneth is asking, do I have any trouble getting medical illustrations into evidence at trial? Uh, no, I never do. And generally, 
I usually argue to put them into evidence as an exhibit for the jury to take with them. That usually doesn't work because technically illustrations, demonstrative evidence is not evidence in the case. It is demonstrative evidence. So usually the court will allow you to mark it for identification. So exhibit 10A is uh, medical illustration one, 10B medical illustration two, and the court will allow you to use that at trial uh, you have to lay the foundation by showing it to your expert, having your expert asking if it will help the expert in his or her testimony today to explain the medicine to the members of the jury. And um, usually the defense doesn't even object because they like to use it as well, uh, the exhibits. So I've never had a problem with it. Sometimes they'll even let it go into evidence, sometimes not, um, but I never have a problem showing it to the jury. Um, Richard Cordero is asking, why wouldn't the hospital, in the example I gave where you have a radiology defendant and you have the hospital, why wouldn't they use every opportunity uh, during the deposition to question the radiologist to try and, you know, build uh, admissions of the radiologist or point the finger? And you're going to have to ask my colleagues on the defense side, but my understanding is, although I'm dumbstruck every single time that I have other lawyers in the room representing other defendants that they don't ask uh, someone who is a co-defendant questions is because, you know, most medical malpractice lawyers um, do a lot of work for most of the medical malpractice carriers. So even though they're different law firms, let's just take um, MLM, medical, uh, what is it? Medical Liability Mutual, if I'm saying that right. Let's take MLM, they write policies for, um, Physicians, um, you know, just because one defense firm is representing the radiologist, the firm representing the hospital may also have work for the same carrier that's MLM that's covering the radiologist, maybe just not on this case. So they're not going to do anything that could ultimately hurt the carrier, hurt their business moving forward. And uh, again, that's my best understanding. But generally, you will find um, that even though there's plenty to go on, uh, that uh, defense counsel for one med mal defendant will never question a physician co-defendant represented by another firm. It's just the way it goes. Uh, you got to do all the work as the plaintiff. All right. Uh, Nick Mahoney is asking, do I recommend the use of a hypothetical question on direct for medical experts to prove a departure from good and accepted medical practice um, and proximate cause? Yes. Hypotheticals are great because sometimes you'll get an objection uh, that you're asking the, you know, if you don't phrase it in a hypothetical, uh, that you're asking the expert to consider items that are not in evidence, perhaps. So hypotheticals are really good um, because then you can phrase the scenario however you want. Uh, you can tie things in together. In the example I was giving, I could say, I want you to assume the following facts. Uh, for this purpose of the question. Just assume these hypothetically, okay? Assume she's 55 years old. Assume she made complaints. Assume she had headaches. Assume this, assume that. Um, do you have an opinion based within a reasonable degree of medical certainty based upon those facts I just asked you to assume of what condition uh, a doctor uh, should reasonably, uh, a reasonably prudent doctor would consider uh, to be the condition based on those symptoms? Yes, what is your opinion? My opinion is someone presents like this, 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 that, um, then yes, they are presenting with signs of an intracerebral hemorrhage, which is a medical emergency. And I want you to further assume that if a doctor was presented with a patient with all of those signs and symptoms and failed 
to take emergent action based upon those presentations? Would that be a departure from the accepted uh, practice of medicine? Um, yes, my opinion is that would be a departure from the accepted practice. And why is it a departure? And then the answer is given. And uh, would that departure be approximate cause of a death uh, resulting from those injuries? Yes, it would. So hypotheticals can be really helpful. Uh, you can always use hypotheticals with experts at any trial. Uh, just frame it in the proper way. Experts are allowed to consider hypothetical facts, hypothetical scenarios, and give their opinions based on that. It's a very helpful way to work with experts. Um, all right, Rebecca's asking, how do I handle a situation where a defendant is deceased? And all you have to potentially use at trial is his or her deposition. Well, it depends on the case. Um, and you do the best you can with it. So if I'm handling a case where my client was alive for a while and then ultimately dies before trial, or maybe even before after the deposition, right? But before trial, um, then you use the transcript to the best of your ability. Um, and the way that you actually do that is you can use their deposition transcript. It's evidence at trial. What I've done in those situations is I've had uh, someone from my office get on the witness stand and actually read uh, quest, uh, read the answer. I read the question. Um, there's ways you can do that. Um, that's the best you can do if you need certain testimony. You want to get that testimony in somehow. And if you have a deceased witness, you can use their transcript. If it's a problem for you, let's say you're representing the defendant doctor and the doctor dies before trial and all you have is the transcript. That's a tough situation because you know, you haven't, as the defense lawyer, you haven't elicited answers from your doctor. Nobody else has. It's just the plaintiff's questions. And those are all going to be questions really zeroing in uh, perhaps on liability. Um, and it may not be helpful to read some of those answers. Whereas if the doctor was alive, the doctor would explain the thought process and the reasoning and work with your expert. So in that situation, you, you know, basically you, you may not call that witness at all. Maybe just have your expert do it based on the records. Um, so you really have to workshop it and see the best way when you have a party or an important witness who's deceased at the time of trial, how to handle that. And that's where the art of being a litigator comes in. Think about what you think is best, speak with your colleagues, reach out to me in, in a one-on-one. -on -one. I do strategies with other lawyers on how to handle things. And then you'll come up with the best uh, course of action and proceed that way. All right. Um, Michael's asking, does anyone have a recommendation for a plaintiff's med mal firm that handles cases in Suffolk County? Yeah, there are plenty of them. If someone is on this webinar, I suggest you type in and tell Michael you can help him out. Otherwise, uh, Michael, feel free to uh, reach out to me directly and uh, I'll be happy to you know, help you out there. All right. Uh, John Martino is asking, how do you overcome cross-examination when your expert primarily testifies for one side? So that's not uncommon in certain areas of practice, especially in medical practice, where the plaintiff's expert doctor usually testifies for the plaintiff and that the defendant's expert doctor usually testifies for the defense. It's harder for plaintiffs to get experts because you're asking a physician to get on the stand and critique uh, the care of a colleague, potentially another physician in their world, in their region, in their location and area of practice, uh, can put them in a pretty bad situation, make them uncomfortable. That's why the whole 3101 disclosure rules, you don't have to name your expert because you don't want any 
out of concerns that maybe uh, word will get put in behind the scenes and discourage them from testifying. So what you could do is if you're plaintiff and your expert only does plaintiff's work, you could say, I noticed that you only do plaintiff's work. Or have you ever done work for a defendant? You always, I try and find experts that do work for both sides. That's always my preference. So that looks, that shows that they're fair and balanced. But if your expert is heavily one way or another, you know, you can just, what I would do is just prepare them for that situation to answer on cross or maybe bring out on redirect. And a good answer for plaintiff's experts is, look, you know, I can call it, you know, as it is, many doctors are concerned that if they testify honestly, that there could be repercussions testifying against a fellow doctor. So there aren't as many physicians that do this type of work, but I think it helps the profession uh, by pointing out errors and mistakes. And uh, and I and I do this to help better the profession. So you can kind of handle it that way. Um, Nicholas, how do you handle objections to the hypothetical question uh, if they're not in evidence? You say, you, you know, you say, Your Honor, I'm allowed to ask an expert a hypothetical question and to opine on a hypothetical fact pattern. And if need be, I'm sure there's case law everywhere, you know, have it ready at the ready. But most trial judges know that hypotheticals are allowed. So you can deal with it that way. Um, David has a cataract case. Can you speak to me about the case? Can I try the case for you? Um, yes, you can speak to me and maybe. Um, so reach out to me. Uh, my email's up on the screen behind me. Shoot me an email and we can go from there, David. Thank you. Uh, all right, Robert, thank you for recommending a lawyer out in Suffolk. Someone's also asking for a plaintiff's med mal firm to handle trials in Orange County. Again, you can reach out to me by email. And if there's somebody on this webinar uh, that handles those cases uh, and wants to jump and throw their hat in the ring, uh, let them know. All right, Scott, how are you? He's asking me if I always call the defendant physician hospital on my direct case. And if I do so, do I subpoena them or read their transcript? Yes, I always call the defendants in my case in chief. Always. I do that in all of my trials, especially in my medical malpractice trials. I put the defendant on the stand in my direct case. I take control of the narrative. I put them on. I start cross-examining them, which you can do because they are an adverse witness and you get right to it. I get that all out there. I usually want to get it out there before I even put my own expert on. So then when my expert's on the stand, I'll say, doctor, I want you to assume that the defendant doctor testified yesterday that blah, 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 blah. Okay. And the reason I say assume is because otherwise, if I say, uh, expert doctor, uh, defendant doctor testified yesterday that X, Y, and Z, I'll probably get an objection from defense counsel. That's not what was said, right? Um, if I don't have the exact transcript. If I have the exact transcript from yesterday, if I have the dailies, I can read it. I say, doctor, I want you to read this answer to this question that I asked yesterday. I'm going to read this to you. And now having read that, I want to ask, do you have an opinion on whether or not that answer indicates uh, that uh, the defendant departed from the standard of care. But hypotheticals are great because then you don't have to be as specific and you can just say, I want you to assume that there has been testimony about this. I want you to further assume there's been testimony about that. And then you ask for the opinion questions there. Now, when I do put an expert, I'm sorry, when I do put a defendant witness on the stand in my case in chief, as I always do, what you want to do is reach out to defense counsel before a trial and say, hey, I'm going to call your client in my case in chief. 
will you agree to voluntarily uh, present them uh, for, uh, and produce them for trial on the stand? And usually they'll say, sure, we'll do it. Let me know when you want the doctor. The doctor is going to be there every day or just let me know which, what order you want to do it. Um, sometimes you may get a response from defense counsel saying, no, I, won't, I can't agree to that. Um, but you, you can, if you want, subpoena the doctor. Um, and then my next question is, can you accept the subpoena on behalf of the doctor? Because technically I shouldn't be subpoenaing the doctor because uh, he's represented by you. And then they'll tell me, yes, I can accept the subpoena. Or if they say no, just go serve the doctor. Um, those are generally the three ways. You either get an agreement in writing, email, whatever is fine, representation that uh, they're going to produce. Uh, that's fine. I'm happy with that. I rely on defense counsel's word. If they tell me we'll produce them, I have no problem with that. And then if they don't, I tell the judge, he told me he'd produce and he's not. Um, and then the next step would be subpoena whether they'll accept the subpoena on behalf of the defendant doctor. And if not, then you just get a process server to subpoena them. Um, okay. Nicholas is asking, what order do you call your witnesses on a direct case? Great question. I've talked about this in earlier parts, I believe, of this series and certainly in other of my programs. Um, it's another art form is the order of witnesses. I don't do the same order in every single case. I generally follow a certain pattern um, where, generally speaking, I'll put the plaintiff on first to give the overview, to get the jury to know the plaintiff. Um, generally speaking, I'll do that. If there's reasons not to, if I think it's better to hold off on the plaintiff till later in my case in chief, depending on the facts in my case, I may wait. Generally speaking, plaintiffs will go on first. After that, um, I'll usually call um, defendant witnesses. I like to lock them into their testimony before my expert testifies. The reason is because let's say, you know, one of the issues is ordering a CT scan. And I want to make it clear that it was a departure not to order it. They didn't even think about ordering it. And then I want my expert to talk about how that was a departure from the standard of care. So I would call the defendant in my case, I'd lock it down. You weren't even thinking about ordering a CAT scan, were you? No, I didn't think it was necessary, right? Then I call my expert at some point after that. And then when my expert says that's a departure, he wasn't even thinking about it, then it's locked in. But if I call my expert before the defendants, the defendant gets on the stand and my expert says, yeah, it's a departure not to order a CAT scan. And I think this doctor departed from good and accepted practice and uh, failing to do so. Um, then the defendant can get up on the stand and tailor an answer. I mean, depending how the deposition went, you could impeach, or maybe you didn't get a straight answer, or maybe it's something you developed after the deposition. But then having heard what your expert says, the defendant can tailor his or her testimony and get up and say, well, I was thinking about a CAT scan, but I didn't do it because... I felt that the radiation, the stress, there could be issues with that. You don't want to jump right into that. There are other things that I was considering, and it's reasonable. It's within my judgment. There's a judgment rule uh, where it's a gray area that if it's reasonably within the judgment world, uh, doctor's judgment, it may not be a departure. So I like to get all the defense witnesses on first. Then I usually will wrap it up with my expert on liability 
And then I'll finish up my order of witnesses with my damages witnesses. So family members to talk about pain and suffering, loss of guidance, if it's a death case. Um, then if I have uh, a life care plan, uh, let's say the person survived, but is going to need future care and treatment, I'll have my life care planner come in. If it affects their ability to earn an income because of their injuries, I'll have my vocational expert. Then I'll bring in my economist to tie all the numbers together and talk about the economic loss. Um, and then usually I try and end all of my trials with a sympathetic um, damages witness. So whether it's the plaintiff that I say for the end or a spouse or a child, but I usually like to end on a witness that I think will move the jury in my eyes towards my side of the case, maybe some sympathy um, and one that can't really get beat up on cross where the defense can make a really strong point by ending the trial or at least ending the plaintiff's case on a, on a strong cross-examination. So I like to, you know, um, sort of play it based on the facts, but that's generally the order that I go in. All right. So I think that I hit on the Q and A's. I'll give a second if anybody else has anything else that they'd like to um, chime in on. All right, I see Rebecca is adding it. We've got a couple more minutes. Happy to stay on here. Uh, Rebecca is asking if I'd like to use exhibits during my opening, and how do you handle a situation where a judge will not permit the use of his exhibits intra-opening? Great question. I love to use demonstrative exhibits in my opening. Um, it's usually not allowed. Uh, I think I even asked Judge Sampson, correct me if I'm wrong, Your Honor, at a trial in an auto case where I said, can I use, I want to use some photographs or I want to use a diagram or I want to use, you know, I've got my expert. He's going to move this exhibit into evidence through my expert, but subject to connection, can I use it in my opening? And his honor was like, nope, this jury's not seeing anything unless it's in evidence. So you'll have your time. I said, okay. So that's how he runs his courtroom, which I totally respect and get. I have had some other courts Judges, they'll ask you to pre-mark all of your exhibits. They'll ask which exhibits you'll stipulate to, which you won't at the beginning of the trial. And some will be, and sometimes if my adversary doesn't have a problem and they may want to use my exhibit, because I find defense counsel doesn't always have exhibits or they don't get a budget to do exhibits and they'd like to use ours with their experts as well. Fair is fair. Uh, and they agree to put it into evidence uh, and stipulate before trial, then it's fair game. Anything in evidence. Uh, can be used in opening. But generally, if I had to ballpark how often I get to use it, uh, any exhibit at the start of a trial, including demonstrative evidence, uh, very rarely. Um, but if I can, I love to use it. Okay, Richard Cordero, what are the different sources of accepted standards of care? Something similar to the Dictionary of Diseases. Well, there is no source. There's no book you can look at. Nothing talks about the standard of care. In medical malpractice, the way you establish a standard of care and or a deviation or departure is through medical testimony, through expert testimony. That's why these cases are tough, folks. You can't pull out a book that everyone agrees, oh, that says what the standard is. Because just because it's a book written by the top person in the field, you'll get plenty of doctors who will say, well, yeah, I don't agree with that part. I don't agree with that doctor there. That is not set the standard just because that doctor says it. We all have our own opinions. So it's not easy, but there is no uh, source for standards of care. All right. Joe's asking tips on how to help convince a jury whether the reasonably prudent person would have proceeded with the operation 
and the informed consent. It's tough, Joe. I mean, that's informed consent. I am one of those lawyers. I will never go to trial solely on an informed consent case. I just won't. To me, it's a gravy that you throw in if you feel you have liability. But I think it's a loser uh, to go into a medical malpractice case or trial solely on informed consent, unless it's so extreme. Like, you know, you're going in for a cosmetic procedure um, to have maybe a baggy uh, eyelids, right? And you want to go to a plastic surgeon who says, yep, it's pretty straightforward. I'm going to do an incision. I stitch it up there. Risks are perhaps um, you could get an infection in there. I'd give you treatment. You may have a small scar. And then you go in for the procedure and you come out and you're blind, right? And then the doctor says, oh, it's a risk of the procedure. You know, uh, it usually doesn't happen, but you can always slip. You can get into this. You can get into that. And there's no consent form, right? You know, I'm going to take that case and say there was malpractice. You should never damage the eye, you know, when you're doing that type of procedure. That's the, that's the case. The fact that there wasn't a signed consent form and no evidence that any risks of the procedure relating to loss of vision was shared with the client, um, that's gravy on that case. I'm not going to go into that case if it's a known risk, right? Uh, just on the fact that there wasn't a form signed or maybe the doctor didn't tell the patient. But that's the type of case where I think a jury can get that if you're going in for that type of cosmetic procedure, that if the surgeon says, listen, there's also a risk that you can end up being blinded and I need to tell you about that. I think that's one where a jury would say, well, in this situation, I, th I think a reasonable person, having been told that risk, may not have undergone that small cosmetic procedure, okay? You might have a shot there. But most of the time, the situations are surgery, you know, and if you're going in for heart surgery and the patient ends up dying um, and you're trying to say, listen, they didn't talk about death. They said it was an easy procedure. As plaintiff's lawyers, we hear clients a lot. They never told me that, you know, this could happen. Um, I, yeah, I signed a bunch of forms or whatever. But most of the time when you're going in for surgery, there are going to be risks of death, risks of this, risks of that. And most jurors will say, yeah, I get it. If I'm going in for this type of surgery, I know I'm signing off on everything. I'm hoping it doesn't happen. I'm expecting it doesn't happen. And uh, that's usually how it plays out. Okay. Hope that answered your question, Joe. Uh, James, can you subpoena and call the defense medical expert on your case? And are there limits in asking his opinion? That's a really good question. So what I see happening, it's usually not in the medical malpractice world, but sometimes in an injury case, you'll have the defendant doctor who is an honest broker and does an independent medical exam of my plaintiff, says, yes, I think it's causally related. Yes, I think there's permanency. And I'm already to queue up and subpoena that medical expert uh, to put on the stand to say, you were hired by the defense and this is what you think. Um, it's never gotten that far because usually if they find that way, those cases do resolve. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest, and if anyone knows the answer, if they're, if you're precluded from subpoenaing that medical expert, uh, I don't think there's a reason why you'd be precluded. I think you certainly could subpoena that medical expert. The medical expert may not comply and probably wouldn't um, comply with the subpoena, but I would certainly do it. 
Uh, I'm not aware of case law or rules against it. And I think it's a great technique. And I certainly have argued in the past that I'm going to call this expert. I'm going to call the no-fault doctor. I'm going to call that expert. They all give us favorable stuff, the workers' comp doctor. And I'm going to put them all on the stand and show what that they're, we, they weren't hired by anybody related to my side of the case. And look what they say. So I would go for it if you could. All right, David is saying, if I take a case for trial, how much do I charge for? Uh, David, that's something we can talk about directly. Every trial lawyer um, has their own arrangements depending on the specifics of each individual case. All right, so here we are. We're at 227. I thank you all so much for hanging in there and participating. And um, if you haven't already booked a one-on-one with me, please do so. If you haven't checked out my book, please take it and order it. Uh, proceeds go to charitable causes. Uh, listen to the podcast if you're not listening already. Lots of helpful advice. And uh, have a great summer. I will next see all of you. My next CLE will be October. I'm going to miss miss all of this. 